every day that you go out to train as an opportunity to train your mind. And I am somebody that I truly believe that you never, ever, ever give up. If you are in a training session and it is not going well, then adjust your expectations for the day. You know, if it says go ride at 250 watts or go run at six minute pace and I can't hit those numbers, then I say, okay, I'm going to do the intervals at 610 pace or 615 pace. Like I set, readjust my expectations to make sure I get the workout in. Welcome to the Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. I am here for the Common Threads with Sarah Piampiano, Lord, and we met probably a month or two ago. Um, right before the 19 started. Yeah, right before <laughs> the right before all the parties started. Yeah. So. My intro for you is last year you did, and this is just on your website, so you can correct me if I'm missing, but you did okay. 11 Ironmans last year. Is that right? Ironman and 70.3. Yeah. I, 11 so, Ironmans would be a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you were either first or second in seven of those. Yep. That's that's legit. Yeah, that's Thanks. legit. So um, I, I, I'm impressed with that. So I think that, you know, you... A, about a decade ago, you quit your investment banking job and just decided to go be a pro triathlete and quickly became one of the best in the world. So I, before we even get into that, though, I always start with the hardest question. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's a really tough one. So what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had a smoothie with Greek yogurt Banana, flaxseed, hemp seed, um, orange juice, and two hard-boiled eggs. All right. That's a good breakfast. It was a good breakfast. I try to mix it up. I don't like to have the same thing every day. So, How does your breakfast change based on what you've got on your training or recovery plan for the day? Usually if I have a pretty long day on tap I will go with a more carb focused breakfast so I'll have a big bowl of oatmeal with yogurt and nuts and seeds and berries and usually some eggs maybe I'll add a bowl of Cheerios into it as well um, if I have a day like I had today which is a little bit lighter um, more of a recovery day I try to focus a little bit less on the carbohydrates and more on protein and, and fats for the recovery side of things all right. We're going to get more into that. But why don't we start with your journey from being a little girl in Maine chasing cross-country titles <laughs> to a collegiate athlete to banking and then back to your sporting life. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Maine and um, I was quite a athletic little kid. I was skiing by the age of two and I think I was water skiing by the age of three or four and riding my bike by the age of three. I mean, I, I pretty much just love being outside and running free and doing everything that I could that was athletic. I ran competitively from a pretty early age. Um, my parents signed me up for every sport that was available. So I did soccer and swimming and basketball and softball and running and everything. But when I was eight, I qualified for the national cross country championships. What does that look like as an eight year old? I know. Where is that? How far is it? Yeah, it was in Reno, Nevada. So I got to get on a plane, miss school, fly across the United States. So it was for me, what made me fall in, lo in love with running was less about the actual running and more about the fact that as an eight year old kid, I got to miss school, fly in a big plane across the United States go on a trip with my parents. I just thought that was really neat. And, um, so yeah, I mean, from there I just, I don't know. I kind of took to running and, and got quite into it. I was still ski racing as a kid. And so usually my falls were about running and my winters were about skiing. And when I got to high school, 
it was really at a point where if you want to be a serious ski racer, you have to pretty much focus 100% on skiing. And if I wanted to be a serious runner, I had to start transitioning my focus more towards running. And they don't really go hand in hand, uh, cross-country running and alpine ski racing. And at that point, I mean, I love running now, but as a kid, I found it kind of a, a little bit of a lonely sport. And one of the things I loved about skiing is that every weekend I would show up and I was with all my skiing buddies and I don't know, I just had such a good time. So I ended up choosing ski racing. Um, I went initially to Carabasset Valley Academy, which is a ski academy in Maine, and then um, got kicked out. <laughs> I didn't know that yes, story. I did. I got caught <laughs> drinking, <laughs> got kicked out. That happened to a few people, I think. Yeah. Um, and then I went to Stratton Mountain School. Oh, that's so funny. What grade were you in when you got kicked out? I was a junior. Okay. Yeah. So it was a big deal because as a sophomore, I went as a winter term student to CVA and it took a lot of convincing to let my parents even let me go and do that. And then I finally convinced them to let, to be able to go full time to CVA and I promptly got kicked out like a month in. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm sure you weren't the only person yeah. drinking. <laughs> but the other thing is that it was the first time I ever drank in my life. Oh, my and I gosh. Got <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So for the listeners, my wife went to Carabasset Valley Academy she as did. well. Yes. Um, we knew each I'm other sure then. she never drank. Um, never. <laughs> or got she didn't get kicked out. I don't think she got kicked out. Uh-huh. Well, there you go. Yeah. How did your parents handle that? They were not happy with me, as you can imagine. But um, actually, I was really surprised that they ended up letting me go to Stratton Mountain School. So I I think I got expelled from CVA maybe in October, and I was home for about a month, and then I went to Stratton and started going there in early November. I was so devastated, actually, because I was – I'm so sure. excited about being able to go full-time to CVA. I think my parents actually started to take pity on me because they just saw how upset I was <laughs> by the whole experience. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's that's crazy. Um, <laughs> so from, from that experience into – so where did you go to college? I went to Colby College right. in okay. Maine. And uh, it's a Division three school except for skiing, which is Division one there. Yeah. And so you skied and ran both in college? That's right. So through high school, I skied and I played soccer. And then when I, I actually got recruited for running by a lot of schools um, and a bunch of division one schools, but I wasn't really sure that I was ready to go back to running at such a serious level. It was interesting to me that I was getting recruited for running when I hadn't been running for so long, but, but I ended up deciding to go to Colby. And when I got to Colby, I decided that I wanted to start running again. And so I did not run my freshman year, but then ran my, my sophomore, junior, and senior years. And what you studied and how that led you to a career in, in finance. Yeah, so I uh, originally was majoring in biology with an environmental science concentration. And I went to a liberal arts school, so we had to take a whole range of different classes and one of those classes was economics and I took it and I just completely fell in love with it actually I which surprised me I didn't think that I would like it at all but biology chemistry it's very enigmatic it, there is real world application but just on a day-to-day basis there's not real world application and I was taking my economics courses and reading the paper and watching the news and I was able to relate what I was learning in my econ course to what I was seeing everywhere around me and I was very inspired by that and so I sort of shifted courses. I ended up picking up a economics major as well. So I double majored and definitely decided at that point I didn't really want to become a doctor. And I wanted to go more uh, down the finance route. And so what do those, uh, those next few years look like? like once you graduate, are you in New York in finance? Where did, I, where did you end up? My junior year, I ended up coming out to San Francisco. I wanted, I don't, really know why I wanted to be out here. I just wanted to do something different. I spent the summer out here. I definitely took the on the viewpoint in college that college was for having fun and 
life began after college. So I was not somebody that pursued internships in college at all. I just wanted to enjoy myself. So my summer I spent out here in San Francisco. I worked at Kenneth Cole and babysat and just did like a whole range of things, but pretty much decided that I wanted to come back here after after school. And um, there were not any firms that were recruiting at Colby College in Maine from San Francisco. And so after I graduated, I packed up my car and um, drove across country and moved out here. And my parents said, we'll give you two months of rent. And after two months, you know, you're on your own. So I just started pounding the pavement. I ended up getting a job at Thomas Weisel Partners, which um, has since been acquired by Stiefel. But uh, it was a small boutique investment bank based here in San Francisco. And what did those what did those years as a as a banker look like? Oh, it was. Uh, well, I started out initially on the trading floor, and then eventually ended up moving um, to investment banking, doing mergers and acquisitions. At at that point, I actually moved to New York City in two thousand and five, I think. Uh, so I was in San Francisco for about three years before I moved, but it was a lot of long hours. I um, I, I slept under my desk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I people think I'm lying when I say I'd work 120 hour weeks, but I really did work 120 hour weeks. Not every week, but I'll you know here and there for sure. I mean, I definitely was working over 100 hours a week um, on a regular basis, and there was not much sleep. I didn't take very good care of my body. I never worked out, so all of my athletic capabilities just went out the door. And um, I think I had an Equinox membership, and I never went once. Yeah. <laughs> Where in San Francisco did you live? Uh, I was in the marina. Okay. I was on Octavia and Union, for anybody that is familiar with that so area. So you had your future waters just waiting right in front of you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you exactly. You could see the bay from here. I could see the bay. <laughs> there was nothing athletic. I actually, when I was in San Francisco, I was part of a ski house in Tahoe. So yeah. I was still skiing a lot and um, spent most of my weekends when I was in San Francisco there. And then once I moved to New York, I lived on the Upper West Side and uh, bought an apartment while I was there, I, the triathlon was not in my, yeah, not in my plan, my job plan. <laughs> Until that fateful bet where someone told you that you you couldn't beat them, right? That's right. Yeah, so, I was out at a bar and I was with some of my friends from Colby and um, one of the guys that I was quite good friends with at school. He and I ended up making a bet that night that uh, see who could beat the other person in a triathlon, and so. So you just showed up and. I showed up, I smoked a cigarette on my way to the race the morning (laughs) (laughs) and I did it. And it was like a life changing moment for me. I, um, I just loved the experience. And I, I mean, I grew up being so competitive and competing at such a high level. I think I just sort of forgotten what that feeling was like. And as soon as I did that triathlon, even though I was in terrible shape and I didn't do very well, it just brought back all of the endorphins and, the memories of what it was like to be competing again. And I just fell in love with it and went back to New York and I bought a bike and started training. And that was it? Pretty much. How how much longer were you working before you fully went all in on triathlon? So that first triathlon was in um, June of 2009. And then I would say that I started taking it pretty seriously um, in 2010. That was kind of my first year racing. And then at that point, I thought that I might have the potential to maybe go to the Olympics or certainly be racing professionally. I, at that point, wasn't really discerning between um, Ironman racing, which is called long course racing, and Olympic distance racing, which is what you see in the Olympics. And so... That was 2010, and then in 2011, I actually went to HSBC where I was working and asked them if I could almost take a leave of absence. I was working 40-hour weeks there, four days a week. Um, I completely cut out all my travel. I had been traveling a lot internationally, and they just gave me a year to pursue triathlon more seriously and with more consistency in my training and see what was possible. And that year, 2011, I ended up winning almost every race I entered, um, at an age group level, and then I finished fourth overall age grouper at the World Championships in Kona. That's amazing. So and the competitiveness, but also like self-belief, like how did you, you know, you're all of a sudden winning 
going for, I mean, you had the athletic upbringing as a kid yeah. and the competitiveness, but you, that doesn't always equate to like showing up at a world championships and finishing. Like, how does that happen in such a short period of time? I don't know. I, I think that growing up, I grew up with two older brothers and um, I pretty much just always wanted to play with them growing up. And it was sort of like this unspoken rule that if I wanted to play with them, I had to toughen up and I just had to, you know, if I fell down, I had to get up and keep going. And I think as a kid, it sort of taught me to believe that I could do what they were doing and never say no. You know, I, I never took no for an answer. I just kept trying and trying and trying until I was able to do what they were doing. And I do feel like that's translated a lot. Uh, I also feel like in banking, you never say I that's not possible. Mm-hmm. You know, if your boss says, I want this information, you go out and you like go to the ends of the earth to find the information and usually you're able to find it. And so I think sort of between what I picked up in banking mixed with my experience as a kid, um, when I went into triathlon, it was sort of one of these things where it was like, all right, this is where I want to go. And like, that's just how it's going to be, yeah. <laughs> you know? What, so talk about that that side because the having worked in such an intense job and career, what did you learn in that? Like, how do you think that's impacted your success as an athlete and your ability to kind of build a career around it? I think a couple things, kind of what I just was talking yeah. about. I think that in banking, you never say that's not possible or I can't find that or that information doesn't exist. I mean. Y- what I learned is if you dig hard enough and if you work hard enough, you can, tip it, it you can figure it out. Yeah. And so I think um, that's translated really well into triathlon where you learn that you just keep on plugging away and trying and trying different things and just you figure it out. You know, you yeah. figure out how to get there and you don't say no for an answer or say that I can't. You're just you just say, OK, well, next time I'm going to try this and see if it works and you just try all these different routes um the other thing is i i do feel like the other side of triathlon is kind of the sponsorship side of things and when i um decided that i wanted to race professionally i think having all my powerpoint skills and writing skills and and general business skills that i learned from working investment banking went to good use with trying to get sponsorships because I put together this whole athlete profile that was like perfect, you know, (laughs) like everything was perfect on it and it, and it had these great pictures and I I don't know, it just for like from a Fortnite matting perspective, it was really well presented and I like printed it all out on glossy paper and I wrote um, cover letters to all of the sponsors I wanted to work with talking individually to each one about what value I could bring to them and I think that that's not something, unless you have a business background, that's not necessarily something that somebody would necessarily intuitively think to do. Yeah. So I do think that that helped me a lot, really get my career off the ground. Because from the first year as a pro, I was sponsored by Shimano, and I got a deal with Cervelo and Cliff Bar and Saucony. I mean, I was I landed some really big name sponsorships you know, my sponsorships weren't huge from a dollar perspective, but simply getting in the door was an important thing for me. What were some of the, some of the surprises for you on coming into the outdoor sports world and navigating all of that? Like, what was it, you know, cause it sounds like the, the process you ran clearly worked. Um, yeah. but you know, and you've, you've still got a lot of those sponsors now a decade later, which is a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> you chose well sign. and they chose well. I, uh, yeah. Built that's a been healthy really relationship. Um, I, do you mean like just in general, what are kind of like, yeah, I'm thinking for people like listening who are navigating that or might have to navigate it. Um, you know, the, the taking it seriously and putting like setting aside the time to do the process properly. Um, yeah. That seems clear because it doesn't just happen by race results. True. Yeah. It is, and, it, and I think ev- now even more than when I, when I started racing as a professional, I don't even know if Instagram was a thing at that point. I can't remember. I think it was more like Twitter was all the rage yeah. at that moment, but social media has become such an increasingly important part of what 
it means to be a sponsored athlete. And um, so now these days, it's really not just about the performance. It's not just about, you know, getting up every morning and training and then going to a race and performing. There's a whole marketing and social media component to what it means to be a sponsored athlete. And my training kind of varies somewhere between like 28 to 40 hours a week of like actual training time. And then I usually spend about 25 hours a week doing sponsorship stuff, whether that means like I'm writing blogs or doing photo shoots or coming up, like having calls and coming up with, you know, activation ideas or, you know, planning for things. I mean, there's just a lot that goes into it. And you're like, you know, you're creating this whole activation calendar and planning out video shoots and going to try clubs and speaking to them when you're traveling. And I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. It's really not just training and racing. Yeah. You know, the coverage of triathlon, but also, you know, endurance sports in general, how have you seen that change and like where has it gotten better and where do you think it still needs to go to to put these sports on the map yeah I think um so I I several years ago I was working with an agent um who mostly represented major league baseball NBA like NFL players and I wanted to work with her because I I was really interested in trying to get some non-endemic sponsors and get publicity outside of the endemic triathlon world. And one of the things she said to me was that she couldn't believe that the various triathlon event uh, organizers weren't spending marketing dollars on creating rivalries between mm. um, between the players and you know, working on trying to get TV rights and, and really creating sort of like drama around triathlon and the events and the, and the people, the professionals involved. She was just shocked by that because she said that with, you know, all other professional sports, they spend so much money on marketing the players out. And it's just something that hasn't really evolved in triathlon. And it was such an interesting concept. And, and actually since then, um, I'm part of this um, organization called the Professional Triathletes Organization. And actually what we're focused on right now is trying to bring triathlon more to the mainstream because I think that for the sport to evolve and continue to evolve, it has to be brought to the mainstream. And yeah. it's just something that as a sport, we haven't really done a good job doing so far. That's so true, especially mm -hmm. with TV going down. I mean, I was I one of the first people I interviewed was Mark Allen and his story of watching the Olympics or what was he? He was, I, I think he was watching the Olympics in 1968. Yeah, and, and he saw, I must have been swimming and was like, I can, I'm gonna do that yeah. when I grow up. Like, and if you don't see it, you can't believe it. You totally. don't, you can't aspire to do it so and um, you know they have the every year there's the iron man um kona right which like is showing yeah. which is always they kind of do this mix of showing the pros and these inspirational stories but it's this one thing so a lot of people are very aware of the hawaii iron man yeah but they're not necessarily aware of of everything else going on and and actually if you look at certain sports i'm i'm you can't see me because we're on a podcast, <laughs> but I'm doing sports in quotes, um, like darts and poker. I mean, people spend hours watching poker games on TV because they've done a really good job of bringing it to the mainstream, putting on television, having commentary that people are really interested in. Same thing with golf. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at golf 20 years ago, people weren't watching it in the way that they watch it now. And it's been brought to the mainstream. It's been brought to television. It's become like a household event that people want to follow and participate in and so it's something that I think there's a lot of room for within our sport well I mean you just look at the Tour de France like mm -hmm. you know there's all these other cycling events that happen but yep. then there's one there's that one everyone watches and yep. it shows that you know people are willing and very excited to watch those sports they need to be marketed very much so yeah yeah that's really cool um well, hopefully we can help with that that's if, right. If we can, if we can, we'll do what we can. Well, I think <laughs> what you guys have going for you is a, the, the pro kit is, is great. So I hope so too. Yeah. One step, one foot in front of the other. We'll, yeah. we'll make, we'll make it happen. Um, so it, it's interesting to think just about like what you've learned through your 
career? Like, I mean, the enthusiasm you brought to being able to work 90, 100 hour weeks in banking and then go into triathlon and clearly take it like with a serious amount of dedication. Mm -hmm. um, you know, w you've you've been all in on it now for a decade or more. Yeah. Right. And I, there's so many areas I want to go on this, but like about uh, well, why don't we just even start with kind of your body and training sleep recovery like you know what have you learned like if you go back 10 years like where where would you be surprised <laughs> um so the one thing I probably noticed the most when I made the transition from racing as an amateur and working in a professional in a corporate environment I should say to um, training and racing full-time as a professional was the recovery just the recovery component I found when I was um, working in the corporate world. Granted, I didn't have a family. I wasn't married at the time. I d didn't have kids. But I was working like 20 hours a day or 18 hours a day or 16 hours a day. But I would like get home and I would get on my trainer at 2 o'clock in the morning so I could get my workout in. And, you know, you were fitting, you were trying to cram so much into a day. And I found that I was never getting enough sleep. I was constantly getting sick and I was constantly getting injured which I think is probably a cycle that a lot of age group athletes fall into. And when I turned pro, suddenly my whole life was literally just about training and recovering. And then suddenly I went from getting four hours of sleep a night or maybe on a good day, like five hours sleep a night to eight, nine, 10, 11 hours of sleep. And between my sessions, I was, I may be doing work, but I was sitting on a couch with my feet up and the recovery practices that I you know, took up, it suddenly became really productive to my results and my training. Like I just saw a huge yeah. upward trajectory in how I was training and, and what I was able to do because my recovery is so much better. And so I look back at that and I just, if I'm, people ask the question, like, what would you have done differently? And I definitely would have probably trained less as an age group athlete and focus more on trying to get recovery. So recovery is king. That's like definitely one thing yeah. that I've learned. Yeah. Um, for me, the keys to performance are hydration, recovery, and fueling, nutrition. So if you're not eating enough and you're not eating at the right time around your, uh, just in general throughout the day and around your training, um, not taking enough protein, things like that. If you're not hydrating really, really well and you're not getting enough sleep, you know, people are spending thousands of dollars on these recovery devices and then they're getting like four hours of sleep at night. They're spending thousands of dollars to like, I don't know, on on recovery devices and then they are starving themselves and not eating enough and then they're wondering why they're not performing well. I mean, those those to me are the three biggest influencers on your performance. Why don't we break that down a little bit? Because I know you've gotten pretty into the science of everything too, like mm -hmm. just monitoring yourself and like, you know, but it's also, I think people go instantly to the science and like the, the recovery tools when you're the actual science is just get, get more sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what have you, like we were talking, um, the other day about like heart rate variability and there's, you know, new kind of trends in how people can monitor their health and the overall stress that their body's under and recovery. Um, have you found that much, what have you found works there? Like if someone's just trying to get a read on, you know, you've got limited hours in the day, you're trying to prioritize, you don't know if you're recovered. How do you figure that out? I definitely think that you just have to, you have to become acutely aware of how your body's feeling. But I also think that, um, I think sometimes people almost like sell themselves short before they actually give things a go. And so for example, this morning I had a pretty hard bike session and um, I got on the bike and I was just, before the session, actually, the main set actually started, I was just dying and I was like, I said to my husband, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I can't even ride 150 watts right now. <laughs> you know, like I, I was just feeling terrible and the session went fine. I think sometimes it's just sort of either your body's waking up or whatever. But with respect to um, heart rate variability, what I've learned is I, I do, I use this, uh, it's called a CircaCore Ember device and it takes a whole range of measurements for me. I take it first thing in the morning when I wake up and in the evening before I go to bed. 
and it measures things like resting pulse rate and heart rate variability and my hydration levels and my oxygen saturation and things like that. And all of those give me really good information, but I, I also don't take them as gospel, right? Like I don't look at my heart rate variability in the morning and if it's telling me that I'm really recovered and ready to go, that does not necessarily mean that I'm really recovered and ready to go. Like I look at it and I look at the trends that I'm seeing, but I can still go out that day and have an absolutely terrible workout. Or I could wake up in the morning and my heart rate variability could say that I'm totally under recovered and I could go out and have a great workout. So I think that part of it is matching what the metrics are saying with also how you're sort of subjectively feeling yeah, and not taking not taking what your heart rate variability is saying or not taking what your pulse rate is saying. I mean, I just don't think that that can be the be all end all of dictating how your day is going to go um, from a training perspective. But certainly looking at the trends is very important. Like if I have a week where my heart rate's really elevated and I'm also feeling fatigued, probably means right. that I'm under recovered. How do you think about like your mind in, in this whole equation? If I were to break it down in percentages, I... I think that like the mind contributes a significant portion to your success as an athlete. I think you can be a really, really, really talented athlete, but if you don't have a good mindset and you're not mentally strong, it's only going to get you so far. I was telling you, David, that I believe in the curse of the super talented yeah. athletes, which is that I find that really, really talented athletes who have the capacity just to just crush everybody oftentimes are not the ones that end up being the most successful in the end because they tend to be um, mentally more weak. And when you find the athletes that are gifted but not that gifted and have to really work for their success... Yeah. They're the ones that end up being the grinders and are willing to just like put their head down and do everything possible and they never give up and they just push and push and push to get themselves to the top because they feel like they're at a deficit coming in and so they have to make up with, with that through mindset and work ethic. So I think the mental game is more important than what your physical gifts are. And you've clearly had a mental game since you were, yeah. a bit, and you know, a, a young uh, kid in Maine chasing, chasing your older brothers around, or chasing people on the on the cross country course. But um, how have you? What do you do now? Like, is that? Do you spend time on that? Do you treat it like a muscle, or do you have practices that? As you show up at the world championships that morning, like what are you doing to get your head in the game? So my general feeling is that every day that you go out to train is an opportunity to train your mind. And I am somebody that I truly believe that you never, ever, ever give up. If you are in a training session and it is not going well, then adjust your expectations for the day. You know, if it says go ride at 250 watts or go run at six minute pace and I can't hit those numbers, then I say, okay, I'm going to do the intervals at 610 pace or 615 pace. Like I set, readjust my expectations to make sure I get the workout in versus some people will just quit the workout because they aren't hitting the numbers on the day. So to me, every You don't feel bad about yourself when that's like, cause that, that's an interesting thing um, on coaching or following a plan. I mean, I had this, I just tried working with a coach last year um, for the first time. And if I couldn't do, th if I wasn't feeling good and couldn't do what was on the plan, I felt really bad about myself. And there was this interesting mental yeah. piece of, but. I would feel worse about myself if I just quit. Right. Because totally. the point of, you know, that's your session for the day, right? Yeah. Like that is do where you you're can. supposed to be seeing the adaptations and whether you you have you have absolutely no idea first of all you have absolutely no idea how the coach is thinking that you might feel right like maybe they're giving you that workout knowing that you're going to be tired and they just want to see how you resp respond under fatigue type of thing like you just don't know necessarily what the trajectory of 
or the plan that they have in place. But the other thing is like, if that's my workout for the day, like why am I just going to not do it? The only time that I would ever probably really stop the workout is, I mean, there's been a couple times when I've had, you know, max efforts and I have truly just been incredibly fatigued and I can't even get myself to like an endurance effort. And that's like a sign of legitimate fatigue. But if my Watts are off by 10 or 20 or 30, like you're just a little tired for the day. So I, I mean, I guess getting back to the mental thing, like I view every single session as an opportunity to test yourself mentally. And I find that if you learn how to adapt in training and to push through the times when things aren't going well and learn how to push through the times when things aren't going well, that is all mental training that you're able to take with you into competition Hmm. because particularly in Ironman and 70.3 races where you're racing for four hours or eight hours or nine hours or 12 hours or 14 hours, depending upon, you know, where you're at, there is no way that everything is going to go perfectly for you. And so the more you practice, it's the same thing as like practicing fueling. You know, if you're, if you don't practice fueling and training and your gut's not adapted, well, it's not going to work for you in races either. And if you're not practicing overcoming adversity in your training mentally, and physically, well, then when you get to a race, you're not going to be equipped to be able to handle that either. So, so I know it's not a lot of a lot of athletes work with sports psychologists. I think that there's a real benefit to that. Um, I don't because I I don't want to say I don't feel like I need it, but I do feel like probably my mind is the thing that I is pro- is my strongest asset, and I really do find and believe and feel that I get a lot out of myself and the mental training from, from actually training on just, you talked about recovery, but on, um, nutrition and hydration mm-hmm. on, but because those are hard for people to figure out, you know, not, not everyone's out there doing iron distance, yeah. <laughs> um, where that really comes into play. But yeah, I mean, talk us through a little bit about like how much of that is like prescriptive things that you've learned and how much of it is adapting to the situation and how you feel. In those. Are you talking about like in a race specifically? A race, but also in, in training. I mean, and people always talk about it in the context of a race, but like staying hydrated throughout your training, like how much are you thinking? It's, it's exactly what you said about like you have to practice what you're going to mm-hmm. do on race day. And yeah. um, I wonder how many people are doing that. I don't think a lot of people do. And I think a, a lot of people, sh- they don't take the fueling and hydration side of things seriously in training. And then they show up to races and in an Ironman, everybody's very serious about their nutrition and their hydration in a race because it's, you're out for such a long period of time. But if you haven't practiced it, it's just not going to be, that's why you end up with a lot of GI distress. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, the things that I've learned in training have been pretty amazing. So for example, when I first started doing Ironman, I would always without fail start bonking about two hours into the bike ride and I could like never figure I mean I I would be eating and eating and eating and I for whatever reason like two hours into the ride I just would always be bonking I remember very specifically being down in LA I was living down there when I first started racing pro and Matt I was doing an Ironman specific ride and it was like six hours and I went out and like three hours into the ride, I just started bonking. And I stopped and bought a Coke at a convenience store and I drank the Coke and I started riding again and I was like back and I was great and my watts were, you know, back up and I was feeling good and for the rest of the ride, I was fueling, but for the rest of the ride, I was great. I was like, wow, that was really interesting. And so I went out on another Ironman ride and the same thing happened and I went out and I bought a Coke again same thing happened. My watts went up. I started riding really well. Everything was great. And I thought, I wonder if this is why I'm bonking in an Ironman. So I now, at about two hours into every Ironman race, I have a Coke. And every time it works <laughs> for me. So, I mean, I think that you, if you're willing to be thoughtful about things and try things in training, you can learn a lot about yourself. And, um, it also just does take practice. So when I first started doing uh, Ironmans, 
I was hard pressed to eat 150 calories on the bike an hour. And now I eat upwards of 450 calories on the bike an hour, which is a lot. And how, how much of that's coming through your drink? Um, I do a mix. So I have, um, I eat, I make these rice bars. And so I eat essentially one rice bar an hour. I usually eat a pack of Cliff Blocks an hour, which is 200 calories, or I'll have like a half a pack of blocks and a gel. And then I get about 100 calories through my, um, through my, my electrolyte mix that I have. And then I add on top of that the Coke that I drink halfway through, which is about 275 calories. And so I have a very detailed eating plan that I go through in Ironman races. But you can't just go out and have 450 calories an hour. Most people's guts wouldn't be trained for that. So now when I ride, anytime I ride over two hours, I am actively practicing. I eat every 15 minutes. Mm. Um, The other thing I've found over the years is and I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way. I mean, I used to only eat cliff blocks and cliff gels in races. And in an Ironman, I just would get to a point where, I mean, my teeth would hurt. 10 hours. Of, it was just yeah. so, I mean, you're literally eating liquid sugar for 10 hours. Right. It's so gross. And as, as great as they taste, it's really disgusting after a while. And so I found for me, the thing that would keep me, um, on top of my nutrition in a race is to vary it up. And so when I was getting the calories from um, my electrolyte mix and getting calories from a rice bar, which isn't too sweet, and then and then taking a pack of blocks an hour or whatever, like I was able to get the calories in much more easily and and on more with more regularity than I was before. And this, I mean, it gets a little bit into the future, but like. Um we've talked to a lot of ultra runners and cyclists and triathletes. So how much do you look at, I mean, how much of this is just learning on yourself, but also pulling trends and learnings from other sports in, I mean, that's the beauty of triathlon mm-hmm. is you naturally get to pull from, but I, I think it's interesting. Sometimes when you talk to people who only have done one sport, I know in business, like a lot, I work in tech, but I've, a lot of the learnings come from other industries, mm-hmm. right? Like where do you see things cross pollinating, whether it's in training or nutrition, but yeah, I mean, I feel like sports can evolve so much quicker when you're pulling trends from each one and applying them to another. I totally agree. I guess, um, certainly, you know, for me on the nutrition and part of it's like a little bit of trial and error, but part of it was I started, I read, a. Alan Lim's book, Scratch Lab, see, like, has this whole book called Portables, I think. And he has a huge section at the beginning where he walks you through the idea of how your gut is able to absorb energy and how, if you have, um, like, for example, rice bars are like quite hydrated. And so when you take them into your gut, your gut isn't having to pull water out of your cells to like hydrate the whatever it is that you're putting in if you're putting in an energy bar something like that and that actually dehydrates you but if you eat something that's well hydrated you stay hydrated and your gut's able to absorb it more readily and I thought that was really fascinating and then I read a book called Velo Chef by Henrik Orr he's the nutritionist and um, chef for Team Sky which is now Team Enios um so you know you read this and then it and it encouraged me to try some different things. And then I found that they worked for me in training. And then I tried them in races. And I kind of started to figure out what worked for me in races. And so a little bit of trial and error. But certainly reading is an incredibly important thing. And I and I find the same thing with, you know, with the training as well. I think I've got a quite a good relationship with my coach, Matt Dixon. And, um, you know, we have really evolved my training over the last 10 years. And, um like now um, we're doing a lot more either sort of endurance riding or really, really, really high intensity stuff because we've done a bunch of testing and looking at um, how I respond to training and things like that. And we've determined that, you know, I respond best to really high intensity, high intensity work. But a lot of that's come from reading and listening to podcasts um, about fat oxidation and, um, 
how your body uses carbs and fat as energy and the different training zones to um, maximize that and how you can actually improve your performance through things like that. So a lot of it's education too. And then just being willing to try things out. Do you have any go-to podcasts or books or things that you've consistently fall into or are you kind of across the board? Generally or? Well, for, for learning, I guess, on the knowledge side, but then also just for fun. I tend to listen to a lot of podcasts just for fun. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I actually, I would say I tend to try to like read stuff online um, and then just talk to people. Like my husband's a sports chiropractor and he reads a lot of stuff. And so we tend to have a lot of conversations. I talk to my um, strength coach a lot and, you know, we have a lot of conversations about like right. some of the new research that, that's out. But podcast wise, um, I <laughs> I don't know. I tend to listen to things that have nothing to do with triathlon. Like, I love listening to How I Built This. That's a special one. Yeah, it's Very so good. good. It's so good. Um, I listen to The Morning Shakeout a lot by Mario, Mario Fraioli. That's awesome as well. Yeah. I love Mario's newsletter. and he, I'm not even a big runner, but it's one of my favorites of all so time. Good. Yeah. It's so good. Um, so those tend to be ones that I lean lean into a lot. Um. What about your, so you, you've had, so Matt Dixon with Purple Patch Fitness is your coach and has been from the very beginning. Yep. Um, what have you learned about working with a coach? How does that, and I'm sure it's very unique for each person, but like what, what's worked for you and why are you still, you know, with the same coach so many years later? It's a good question. Um, I would definitely say that my relationship with Matt has evolved. Um, when I first started working with him, I guess to back up, when I decided that I wanted to take triathlon seriously, I decided that I needed to be coached by one of the best coaches in the world. And so I researched who they were and I reached out to a bunch of them and Matt and I ended up deciding to work together. And I do think that a lot of people fall into the same trap that I fell into, which is that I was so excited to have a coach. I assumed, very much assumed that he knew everything, knew all when it comes to training. And I just aimed to please, right? Like I wanted, I didn't want to fail on a certain workout because I just would think that he would think that I wasn't good enough or, you know, whatever. So I, if I was tired, I wouldn't communicate that to him. I just wanted him to think that I was always ready to go and I was always motivated. And in reality, that's just not the case. You know, you're not going to feel good on every single workout. You're not going to always be motivated. And so one of the things I think I've learned as an athlete, and then just over time with Matt, um, he and I have a very collaborative relationship. And now if I'm feeling tired consistently over a number of days, I'll say, Matt, I'm feeling really tired. And he'll say, well, that's how you're supposed to be feeling, or that's intended right now. I want you to keep pushing through, or that's not planned. Let's back off a little bit. Um, I, because of my background in running, tend to have like a pretty good sense of what I think I need to progress my running. So we're, we work together quite collaboratively on that. Um, and I think the more you work with a coach, the more they get to know you and you get to know them and you learn sort of how to work well together. So the nature of Matt's and my relationship has changed a lot. Whereas before I just did whatever he told me and now he and I certainly collaborate, collaborate a lot more than, than we used to. That's great. Um, I never even brought this up yet, but what would you be doing right now if we were not in coronavirus land? Like what would your spring have looked like in oh, summer? Like, and what does it look like, you know, w talk us through like what, what you're doing now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had planned to actually have a little bit of a less traditional start to my year than normal. Um, so I was asked by Cliff Bar, my sponsor, if I was interested in racing the Boston Marathon. And I said yes. So my plan had been to kick my year off with the Boston Marathon in April. And then I was going to do the Belgian waffle ride, which is a hun roughly, I think this year it was going to be like 135 miles or something, but 135 mile gravel race uh, with like 13,000 feet of climbing. It's pretty epic. Um, so that was going to be in early May. 
And then I was going to kick my triathlon year off after that. And so I had a 70.3 planned in Chattanooga in kind of early May after that. And then I was going to go over to Slovakia and do, um, be part of this event with the PTO, the pro triathletes organization called the Collins cup. And then I was going to do some racing in Europe, uh, do a summer Ironman and then get ready for Kona. And, and where do you think, well, I've, I've been watching you on Strava, which has been really fun <laughs> yeah. of just like you've, I mean, I've watched a lot of pro athletes on, on Strava and elsewhere. Um, and I've really enjoyed watching you cause you're, you just get out there and chase the, the, the <laughs> QOMs and, um, and the Zwift races. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's been also fun cause you've, you know, the, a lot of the people who own those QOMs are uh, are people <laughs> yeah. I've interviewed who are like pros in that specific sport, yeah. and you're like chasing them down, yeah. um, which has been awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. I think um, certainly when COVID first happened, I I actually I felt really inclined to just really take a step back and not do anything with intensity and just do some endurance riding. Cause I thought, okay, well this will maybe last a month and then we're going to have to almost like restart our season. And that means we're going to be racing a lot on the back half of the year. So I'm just going to really take a step back now. But then when it became apparent that it was going to last a lot longer and when, you know, at this point all triathlon races are canceled, at least through July and my expectation is they're going to be maybe the whole season is going to be out. Um, things changed and I felt like I wanted to have some goals to work towards and I'm not training specifically for a QOM attempt, but, um, what my coach and I have done is a lot of my intensity sessions now are really just about going, trying structured, but unstructured. So like I will have a QOM attempt, scheduled for a certain day but that's my that's my hard session and I yeah. go out and I do it and I've just been enjoying it just it adds so some much fun. It it's just, so fun yeah it's been really fun for me actually to see how I compare against these amazing female cyclists it's been really cool and very motivating and um I've actually hit some really some of my best numbers ever so that's been yeah. you know really cool to see so it's been it's been fun and um just it gives me a goal to work towards, and if I get a QOM, great. And if I don't, it's fun. That's to fine see too. <laughs> happen. Yeah. Um, and what what is that? Uh, you know, the Boston Marathon and the Belgian Waffle Ride. Like, what happens? You know, assuming we get back to racing at some point this winter or early next year. Um, w- what are you hoping for? Like, what do you have goals on the horizon for where, where things progress? Um, well, so the Boston marathon is currently rescheduled for September and the Belgian waffle ride is rescheduled for November. It's going to be a busy fall. Yeah. But I I mean, I don't, I'm not even, I'm not even thinking about those to be honest right now because, um, they're supposed to make a call this month as to whether or not the world championships will take place. And if that takes place, Kona is in October. So, um, that will be my focus, but, um, I don't know. I just think it's hard really to have any type of expectations for 2020 at this point until there's like a little bit more clarity. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm just assuming that there's not going to be any races and I'm going about chasing my QOMs and doing my Zwift races and, you know, when there's, I'm not getting caught up in whether things are being canceled or not being canceled. I'm just assuming everything's canceled right now. But um, beyond 2020, I um, I will be transitioning out of triathlon um, at some point. My husband and I want to start a family, and I'm pretty interested in um, transitioning into more gravel racing and um, ultra running So and doing some marathoning. So running's always been my first passion and I just totally love it. And I just started getting into gravel biking this year and I just, I love it. It is so cool. It's so fun. It's challenged me in new ways and, um, I'm well, excited. That, to that's really that. fun. Cause then I can 
the the beauty of gravel racing is that we can show up at a race together and we can start together yeah. <laughs> and then we can have a drink at the finish That's when right. I come in five hours <laughs> yeah. after you. That's but right. that is that is the special part of gravel racing, which I've really enjoyed is you get to feel like a pro for about 10 seconds yeah. until they pull away. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be fun. Race I mean, I've never front, done a gravel race in the before. Rear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that will be fun. Well, we'll have to do some together. Yeah, um, that'd be great. It's interesting because I, um, so for people who don't know, Bofax is this four mile climb and you get about 1,500 feet of elevation gain. And then at the top of it, there's this other stretch of road called Seven Sisters that has seven, I don't want to call them short climbs, but they're like seven big rollers, right? Yeah. And then at the end of Seven Sisters, there's another climb up to um, East Peak, which is the top of Mount Tam. So those are three different segments. And um, Bofax I love, but Seven Sisters is a very, very, very challenging segment for me, and I'm terrible at it because it would probably suit you really well because you need to have that super high short spurt of power. And I am not, uh, I am not a high power person, like whether it's running or swimming or cycling. So I actually race at, um, roughly 90% of my VO2 max, which is pretty crazy. So like the power I can hold at threshold for hours on end is like not far below what my VO2 max power is. So things, so I just don't have a big range. I mean, yeah. so like the seven sisters, I just, the power I'm pu- pushing out over seven sisters is like it's the basically same. the same as on a long up. climb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm terrible across seven sisters, but you'd be really good. All right. Well, I'm going to have to go do, that is, and for people who aren't in the Bay Area, um, who, who aren't from here, it's north of San Francisco up in the, in the hills around Mount Tam, and it is the most beautiful so ride beautiful. I've ever been on so anywhere. And you look down to Stinson Beach on one side and the mountain on the other, and it's it's a wonderful, wonderful place. I got asked recently where the my favorite place to ride is, and I said, probably here. I mean, when you're riding on Route 1 from Mill Valley to Stinson or up over Seven Sisters on Mount, Mount Tam, it does not really get more beautiful than that what it's ab- just so dramatic and it incredible. is stunning and what about uh so you've now spent probably equal parts of your life in maine and california yes. well wh- how do you compare the two well my heart is with the east coast i love it um i hope to move back one day and um Although my husband reminds me that I only go and visit the East Coast now in the summertime. (laughs) I forget how awful the winters are. I do have to say, I mean, living in California is really special. I love the fact that I can ride and be outside year round. It's just incredible. It's taken me some time, though, to get used to this not having seasons in the same way that you have in the East Coast. I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I haven't done a whole lot of riding in Maine other than my family has a cabin in northern Maine on the Rangeley Lakes area. And uh, it's great around there, although there's a lot of logging trucks. But here, I mean, the riding here is just amazing. And the trails. I mean, that's the thing. As a cyclist, whether you're a road cyclist or a mountain bike rider or you like gravel, I mean, this where we are here is like it's the birthplace of mountain biking. And the trails or a trail runner, I mean, it's like heaven. So... But the cost of living here is very expensive. It is exceptional. I could buy like six houses in Maine for the price of one here in in California. So I don't know. And what about uh, to like wrap things up for youth sports and kids and, Mm -hmm. you know, where do you see promise lessons for your eight-year-old self or I don't know how have things changed I don't know. I feel as though when I was a kid, my parents threw me into every sport possible. Like I skied and I swam and I played soccer and I played basketball and softball and I hiked and I don't know. I just did, I did everything. And I do feel like kids are being pushed these days much more into as soon as they show promise in a single sport, they're being pushed into that sport and asked to focus on that sport from a very early age. 
And I think that um, for kids to be lifelong athletes and to still have the motivation and desire to continue to have sport be part of their life, I think it's a really important thing, at least through high school, to try to encourage them to have participate in a broad range of, of sports. I agree. Um, and it, the kids are getting pushed so hard in the so other direction. Hard. And they don't even know they're getting... That's the, the troubling part is the kids don't... They start getting pulled in that direction when they're 11 or 12. Yeah. And they don't even know what's happening. Before you know it, they're burned out, yeah. injured, and not playing any sport. And it's a hard thing because, like, I'm sure you've read Outliers um, by Malcolm Glad- Gladwell. And his whole thing is you know, you need 10,000 hours to become expert at anything. And the sooner you start, yeah, you know, he was like giving the example of these like hockey player kids that start at a very young age and they're, you know, they have a much higher likelihood of playing in the NHL because they started early. And I do think that's true. I think if you, you know, you find mastery probably at 10,000 hours, but I also think there's like a whole mental component. And if you're burning your kids out, and having them take something too seriously and not letting them sort of like find their own journey and explore a lot of different options, then the likelihood of them actually staying in the sport is pretty low. Well, um, David Epstein, I have you heard of the book Range? I think it's Range. Range. Have you yeah. read that? I haven't read it yet. But, but I think just, it challenges yeah. Malcolm Gladwell's theory right. and about it's more the people who are most successful in life, whether in sports or in business or whatever are generalists right. who then find what they're good at through experimentation right. and pushing in lots of different directions and then they go deep and that you can I mean you didn't start triathlon until you were how old? 30. Right? 30 years old yeah. and a couple of years later you were able to take that energy and what you've learned in other parts of your life and apply it to become yeah. one of the best so that's yeah, just yeah I mean that alone I mean, you came from a ski racing background, and we've talked about a lot about this just with friends in the ski racing world. You know, if you're not on the U.S. ski team, by what? Like, if you're not getting handed that by jacket like 14, by, 13. and most people have barely gone through puberty. I know. You don't know which kids are going to be the best skiers in the world when they're 14. And you know what the crazy thing is? Is actually, I don't love skiing as much anymore like there are a lot of other things that I would rather do than ski now and that is what I spent a lot of my childhood doing and I look back and I actually had a really wonderful experience like I loved going to ski school and I loved competing at that high level but I just don't have the desire like skiing I don't know I don't think I feel like I have the love of skiing anymore because I think I just spent so much time grinding it out when I was a kid it was a little cold up there. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's cold. When you're out cal- skiing yeah. in like minus 40 degree weather, <laughs> it's pretty miserable. With people, boots that are four sizes four, too small. Four sizes too small. And you see like pe- people are having to have their toenails drilled to like drain oh, the yeah. fluid because it's frostbite so bad. <laughs> All right. So you kind of addressed this already, but I was going to start with one of my new questions here. How much of your success do you attribute to (laughs) genetics, your mind and self-belief, or the package you put together through like training, nutrition, hydration, all of the recovery, all of the things you do for your mind and body? I think that genetics certainly has, plays a factor. I think that no matter how mentally strong you are, if you're not somewhat gifted, you're not, it's not going to happen. But I personally think that the mind is probably has the majority to get from like a good age group athlete to one of the best triathletes in the world. It's to me, it's like all mental. All right. There we go. Time for me to go train my mind on a long <laughs> ride. Yeah. need to bump it up from an hour to maybe. Do not two. quit. <laughs> Never give up. <laughs> Sarah said, and, and where did, uh, so little red on your website, where did that come from? Yeah, actually, um, so when I was younger, uh, my ski coach um, at Carabasa Valley Academy called me Little Red. And, it and then stuck. it just sort of like stuck and everybody started calling me Little Red. And that's where it came from. All right. And my where, red hair. And where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on my website at sarahpampiano.com. 
You can also find me on Instagram at, at S Piampiano. Um, I'm also on Facebook. I have a Little Red Racing Facebook page and a personal page, Sarah Piampiano. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining. And it's I'm also fun. on ProKit. Yes. <laughs> you got to go check forget. that out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Common Threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David underscore Swain. And then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com.